Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This evening we're going to be in 1 Kings 19. And basically we've been going through the powerful life of the prophet Elijah and the ministry that God gave him, uh, the highs and the lows in ministry. And tonight we're going to see how God revealed himself to Elijah in his still small voice, God's still small voice, and how he picks him up to continue doing the Lord's will. So we'll jump in, verse 19. And Ahab, or King Ahab, told Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, all that Elijah had done and how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. So he beats feet. And even his servant that was with him, he leaves him probably in Jezreel. But context, uh, 1 Kings 18 goes with 19. Uh, Israel was just a depressed place, spiritually in, a, in bad shape. The Israelites had gone apostate. The king and queen were the worst in leadership. And God pronounced a drought on the land and caused a famine. And Elijah, God sends him out again, and he challenges these 450 false prophets, and they were demonic. Okay, let's make no bones about that. And he challenges them to, I guess, a spiritual competition on the top of Mount Carmel, and they both prepare a sacrifice, and uh, God, God, through Elijah, allows the false prophets to all day and night call out to their false deity, Baal, to come and consume the sacrifice. Nothing happens, and Elijah sacrifices, douse with water, and several times, and all of a sudden, God just sends fire from heaven. <sighs> And the whole, everything's consumed. The rocks, everything's, the fire licks everything up. And then he has the 450 prophets executed. Um, Jezebel sends a messenger because the king tells her. And you get the impression that the king's kind of working with the prophet. And the prophet's kind of hoping that the king kind of repents. And he goes home <laughs> and tells his wife. And she's more creepy than he is. And she basically now threatens God's prophet. So everybody saw the good work that God did. The rain finally comes. The parched land is, is becoming soaked. The animals can drink the water. You know, the, the streams are starting to rise. It's a beautiful thing where God lifts this uh, because the people really seem penitent. They will repent. Uh, and Jezebel's furious. You think at this point she'd say, well, maybe what I was following. It's amazing you see that today. Uh, people follow false religions, and they'll, to the very end, they'll hold on to it. It's so sad, they cling to it. Uh, and I even think about today how evil is applauded, and good people are vilified. And this is the epitome of that in Elijah. So Elijah runs for his life. Not necessarily that he was afraid of her personally, but she had command over the army. So as she sent out you know, her special forces or whatever, um, could have found Elijah, but of course, if God was protecting him, he didn't have to run. Remember, God does say many times, Elijah, what are you doing here? And then he tells him, go back. But we're going to see a lot happens in between that, which I find fascinating as well. And I think that, uh, again, Elijah is probably hopeful that the king is going to change, right? 
uh, makes he thinks he probably thought he made some headway with him. They're having a conversation and a dialogue at the end of chapter 18, but things now turn back to worse, you know. Um, so Elijah runs to Beersheba, which is the southernmost city in Judah, so it's really south. I mean, Elijah, he's running for the border. I mean, he's, he's booking. This is like an 80-mile trip that it takes him over some time to get there. I mean, he's going south really far. And just so we understand, and, and I've read different commentaries on this, I don't get the ones that say, oh, well, maybe this was God's, it wasn't God's will. Because as we read it, we see that God keeps asking him, what are you doing? You know, you don't belong here. And then he gives him something to do at the end. So certainly God wouldn't have him flee in fear and terror after he was working on, on the people's hearts. Um, you know, it's amazing that even, but, but check it out. What, what's his legacy? Even the disciples in the Lord's time, when it was a disobedient town, a village, they said to Jesus, shall we call fire from heaven? <laughs> you know, these were the disciples in the, in the age of grace. Everybody knew Elijah. If you were remotely spiritual or had a, a, a training in religious studies, you knew who Elijah was. Even unbelievers today, you ask people, hey, you know who Elijah is? They can probably give you a fact or two. Okay, so he's, but here you see his personal life. You see his, his fear. You see his failings. And you realize, wow, he's no different than me. And I find that refreshing. So you, the best of the best have their moments of doubt. You know, you have your moments of doubt. I have my moments of doubt. We're human. And anyone who puts on a show for me and says that they never have doubt and they never get concerned or worried, I think either they're lying to me or they're self-deceived because we have our ups and downs. And you can see Elijah's emotions get the best of him. Um, he's, and he's terrified of this wicked queen, Jezebel. Um, some of you might have a Jezebel in your life that you're concerned about. Don't call out any names, please. <laughs> Keep that to yourself and the Lord. But even Jezebel is mentioned as the epitome of evil in Revelation 2. That type of Jezebel spirit gets into the church of Thyatira, and the Lord Jesus needs to verbally, he needs that to be rooted out. Okay? So four. But he, Elijah himself, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die <laughs> and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Wow. Wow, take my life. And what we see here is he starts to wallow in self-pity. And, and he does a lot of embellishment and exaggeration. But heck, we never wallow in self-pity, do we? <laughs> I mean, it happens, right? But what's, what's his problem? What's his, what is he so upset about? Well, maybe he thought that after this great victory on Mount Carmel that the the monarchy would turn on a dime. And maybe he thought, well, if that didn't happen, that the people would demand righteousness from their leaders and they would turn on them and overthrow them. And none of that happens. So he thinks he failed. Well, better than my father's. What's the difference, Lord? And see, but he's looking at the surface. You know, he's looking at things on the surface. And I have to tell you, <laughs> we we can see this, or it's not uncommon in ministry either. Anyone who's doing a ministry, in ministry, and there's difficulties, you know, sometimes these, these thoughts go through your head. But we have this, and I'm going to say stupid idea in the 21st century that Christianity, ministry needs to be glamorous. 
It needs to always be scintillating and exciting, and that's not the case. Remember Isaiah 6. Isaiah said, yes, I saw the glory of the Lord. I'll serve you, Lord. What do I have to do? Paraphrasing, he goes, yeah, well, it's, it's going to be a rough ministry, you know. No one's going to listen to you, and the place is going to be ravished. And, and he gives all these bullet points to Isaiah in, in Isaiah 6. But he did get to see, you know, God's glory to a certain extent, right? Um, we know Jeremiah. Well, I'm young. I'm just a youth. Don't, don't be afraid. Don't let them make you scared. Jeremiah, you are young, but I'm put my hand on you. Well, it's my ministry. Well, you're going to get beat up. You're going to be thrown into a well and left for dead. People are going to hate you, call you unpatriotic. Hey, when do you want to sign up? You know what I'm saying? So listen, I, I want to encourage you in this room and anyone who's listening outside on the CD or whatever, but uh, if you get into ministry, you're serving God. It's not always going to be glamorous. Um, it's, you know, that's for God to decide what's out front, what's behind the scenes, what's what multiplies, what doesn't. That's really up to him. You talk to some missionaries in some of these persecuted countries, there's nothing glamorous about what they're doing. So if they bought into the lie of Western Christianity, they wouldn't even be doing what they're doing anymore. I got, we, did you know that we have missionaries now, we as a church that we support, that are in ISIS territory? They're in Syria. They're in Turkey. It's serious stuff. There's nothing glamorous about that. The tent cities, the poverty, the, the stories. So... You know, I know, we turn on Christian TV, and sometimes it's really disconnected from reality. And they almost make a show out of it, and it's not supposed to be a show. So Elijah's dealing with that. I have to tell you on a personal note, sometimes I succumb to, it could be a day when four people come up to receive the Lord, and by nighttime I found out some really bad news, and I'm already, oh, I'm just like bumming out. My wife sometimes has to remind me, look what the Lord's doing, you know. Um, it's It's... It's, it can be tough. It can be discouraging. Verse 5. And then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. He went back to sleep. <laughs> He's like, I just don't want to get up. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. So we have an angel who gives him some food. He wakes up. He says, thanks a lot, jumps up and goes into the battle and says, I'm going to represent God. Uh, no, that's not what happened. He, he, he runs further south. Now, this didn't escape God's notice. God let him go, and God will let us go too. God will allow us to be the head of our own pity party for a time. We can get the party hats. We can bake the cake for ourselves, put the icing. It's all about me. It's a pity party. And God will let us, you know, he, that's the beautiful thing about God. He's not always, he's not overbearing. He, he sometimes gives us our space to work through our issues. You know, it's, God is very gentle and very patient. But I think it's funny that, Elijah is so overcome by emotion that the miracle of the food isn't wowing him. Wakes up, oh, an angel, cake, some water, mm. go back to sleep. You know what I'm saying? He's like not even wowed by this. I know I would be. And here's, I, gotta, I, I just have to say this because I find it hysterical. Reminds me of Numbers 22 with the prophet Balaam. You know, his, his donkey was smarter than him and he keeps pulling him away from the angel of the Lord with the sword. And Balaam is beating his donkey. 
And she looks up and, and she goes, I've been a good servant, why are you beating me? And he answers her. <laughs> it's a great account. He's so overcome with emotion that he's having a conversation with the donkey. So, you know, it's, haven't you been there where you've just been so overcome with some crazy emotion that you're not even rational, you're not even paying attention to what's going on around you? So, verse 8, and some take this as a Christophany, um, the angel of the Lord. Angel really just means messenger. Sometimes that word malak, malak, malak in Hebrew could be used to describe a person who sent the message. Usually it was meant to be an angel, an angelic being, a messenger of God, but that word does have context. Um, and some look at this as the pre-incarnate Christ before he took the form of a man, just aiding uh, Elijah. If you're having trouble with that, we'll talk after service. Um, I'm not completely sold on it, but it's, it's very interesting how this angel of the Lord is referred to with Joshua and Elijah and these, you know, he just is always there at the right time and he's got some really great role. But verse 8, Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are used interchangeable. Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments. Um, Elijah goes far. He really wanted to get away. And, you know, he's, I don't know, I don't want to eisegete I don't want to read into the text. I don't want to put stuff in there that's not there. So I will always separate and say what I think. And you could take it with a grain of salt. But I almost think that he's looking for an experience. He's looking to get out of Israel, get out of Dodge. You know, he's looking to go somewhere. And, you know, just maybe it's a, it's a different setting and it has monumental significance and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I see that today with uh, people who... They'll even leave a Bible-believing church where they're really getting fed, up the, fed the Word of God and they'll go to some place that's more liturgical. It's the smells and the sounds and they, they, they just get this feeling. Um, it's not necessarily true. It's just what they, what they prefer. I, I know those that, as if God only works, some will go on a missions trip and as if they've never seen God or heard God before, but they found Him in Ecuador. You know what I'm saying? God's everywhere. Uh, or some, a lot of people are leaving and going to California from New Jersey because the weather's always beautiful. Uh, and talking about God, God, God is, listen, God's in New Jersey too. He's everywhere, you know what I'm saying? Don't insult us. God's here as well. But wherever you go, God's there. And you don't need a special location or experience. You could go home and on the drive home have a relationship, have an experience, have him answer prayer while you're driving. I always keep pens with me. Because whenever God answers a prayer or tells me something, it's always at a time that I'm like, boy, let me pull over. He'll give me like something for a message. And literally, I'll pull over and I'll start writing on a napkin. And hopefully, I remember to stuff it in my pocket and bring it in the house with me. So God is, is everywhere, okay? It's, it's important to express here. But again, God gave him his space. Elijah needed, get, needed to get his head right. And I tell you that every one of us, we just need that time. We need that space. Um, sometimes God gets a hold of me and it's good that nobody's called or I haven't seen anybody because I might be a jerk and, and it wouldn't be good. So he, he isolates me and gives me a time to work things out and then he puts me back in the game. But I'm not ashamed to say that. We are human and we are frail. So you're not going to hear anything out of any of the people that get up to this pulpit that say, oh, we're perfect and you know, we're above you. It's just not going to happen. Okay, um, then they might as well put us there instead of Elijah, you know what I'm saying? Verse 9, he says, And then, and there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him 
And he, God said to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left and they seek to take my life. So he says, God says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Remember, he said to Adam, what are you doing? Or where are you? Right? What's going on, Adam? Elijah, what are you doing here? Now, does it mean that God gets forgetful and he's like, oh, Gabriel, look, Elijah's in a cave. Why did that happen? Where was I sleeping? You know, that's not the, the case. God knows everything, but it's almost as like a parent is testing his children. And I think sometimes, and he asked them again. You ask somebody a question and they answer it, you know. Um, Jesus said, do you love me, Peter? You know I do, Lord. Peter, do you love me? He asked him three times. And it's almost like a, sec, a, a, a self-actual or self-realization. Uh, it, it's kind of therapeutic. You, you, you really, you hear the question, you answer it, you hear it, you answer it, and you start to think about, what are you doing? And, and is my answer really matching what I'm doing? Um, verse 10, Elijah basically says, hey, I'm the only one left who honors you. Again, it's an embellishment, it's an exaggeration. Uh, but I think that his emotional state, I don't think he's trying to be deceptive. He's just, he's just fraught with emotion. Um, he's focusing on himself. In other words, why bother God? I'm the only one who's working for you. And, lo- and look, look what's happening. Look what I get for it. I had to run out of, out of the country. And, and again, we've never prayed and, and had our pity part, party and whined to God things that weren't accurate. And we look back and go, ah, that wasn't really true. I was really emotional at the time. So he's just, you know, he's just being human. But, but his platform is, and, and I don't want to cut this out too much, but there's also an element of pride in the sense that I'm the only one helping you. I'm unexpendable. There's nobody else but me. You can find a lot of things with this. Now here I find fascinating that uh, who came, you can call it out, who came in the spirit and manner of Elijah? Who came in the New Testament? Boy, you guys are awake and you're correct. That's awesome. John the Baptist. He came in the spirit of Elijah. Jesus spoke highly of John the Baptist, right? And he had his moments too. Remember Matthew eleven three. 3. He's languishing in a Roman prison, in Herod's prison. And, G- and John sends two disciples to Jesus after Jesus is baptized by John. After John sees the Holy Spirit descend, he hears the voice of the Father and, and he knows, oh, and he prophesies you know, the, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. He's prophesying to his deity and, and all kinds of stuff. And here he's in a prison, probably depressed, probably languishing. The conditions aren't great. And he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, are you the coming one or should we expect another? Think about that for a moment. It's really actually insulting. But John was desperate. You know, is there somebody else who's going to come and spring me, Jesus, after you? Because I really want to get out of here. And we know the story, he gets his head cut off. You know, Jesus, do you see this? Jesus, do you see where I am? Jesus, what are you going to do about it? Sometimes we ask those questions too. Jesus, do you, do you see this? Do you see this person? Do you see what they're doing to me? Do you see the, the bullying? Do you see the, the lack of finances? Do you see I'm in and out of the hospital? Jesus, help me, right? God has a plan. He's not going to leave us or forsake us. Uh, Elijah, <laughs> you can... You know, say what you want in today's society. Did he have ministry burnout? Did he, had a, did he have a minor depressive episode? Fill in the blanks. Unfortunately, though, Elijah started to shift the focus from God to himself, and that's where everything went south. And that happens to us, too. 
You know, we're focusing on God. We're certain it doesn't matter. Could be one convert, no converts. Could be the guy a year down the road that makes a convert where we, it doesn't matter. We're serving the Lord. Then when the focus starts shifting to us, then we start to become, it becomes problematic. And really, serving the Lord, Lord is awesome. The problem comes when there's other people who you're trying to reach and they're really resistant to God and they take it out on you because you're carrying his message. That's where the fun begins. <laughs> and I say that facetiously. You're just the messenger and you're being attacked and slandered and, and lied about. Okay, now the, the, the focus goes from God to me. It's, it's about me, Lord. But we're supposed to walk by faith and not by sight. If we walk by sight, we're going to have these problems because we're just going to see the circumstances. You know? So Elijah, he's not the only one who complained about his ministry. Jonah did. Moses did. And sometimes we do. Okay? But if we focus, if we shift the focus back to God, then we see it as an honor to serve the living God. Verse 11. Then he said... God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rock in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake ate on the Richter scale. I added that. <laughs> but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Okay? And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. Could you picture Elijah? I know one of these great manifestations, any second now, the Lord's going to be in it. But, and after the fire, a still small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Powerful. You know, God demonstrated a very similar pattern to Moses. You know, ministry can be difficult, especially when you're dealing with folks who not willingly want to follow what the Lord says. Moses had a very tough time. He was a very meek man. He begged the Lord for somebody to help him, and the Lord let Aaron help him out. He didn't even want to talk in front of Pharaoh. But Moses, if we can go to Exodus 33, a very, very similar experience. And he struggled, and he wanted God to reveal his glory to him. And you know, when you are in ministry, I can relate to this. And you're just getting beat up all the time. You're just getting kicked around. You, things aren't getting reciprocated. You, you, you do. You say, Lord, I just want to see you. I just want to, you know, something, Lord. You've got to give me something I can hold on to. It's, it's not far from the truth. It's, it actually is the truth. Verse 18, 33, 18. And he, Moses, said, please show me your glory. Then he, God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. In other words, God's full glory as a sinner. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. Here, let me put you somewhere like he did with Elijah. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So he did answer his, and some believe that actually Elijah ended up almost or pretty much at the same geographic location that this happened to Moses. Remember, he goes, 
right? Moses is going east, <laughs> Elijah's going southwest, and they both at some point were at this place. It's fascinating though. So what did God do? Well, he, we know he didn't chastise Elijah and beat him down. He didn't do that to Moses either. And you know what? He's not going to do that to us. And when we're really struggling and, and we, we just uh, cry out to God, you know, trust him. Just give him a, a, some, a few moments. Lord, I'm on a time schedule. I need to feel your glory in the next five minutes because I got a whole itinerary. It doesn't work like that. We have to be still sometimes. We have to be settled and trust the Lord. Okay? So he encourages Elijah by further revealing himself. Here's something very interesting. God was not in the earthquake. He was not in the wind. He was not in the broken rocks. And he was not in the fire. But he was in the still small voice. Hmm. I think about our culture. It's so fast-paced. It's so entertainment-generated. Uh, even Christianity, same thing. We've got to keep people's attention. Come on. Watch the little bird over here. Okay, then look over there and look up there. And, 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 you know, everything today is monumental. Everything is entertaining. Monumental churches, monumental Christian rock concerts, Christian colleges, Christian magazines. Oh, even some supposed Christian reality shows. A few of them didn't go so well. Christian celebrities and ministries. But many times, God is not in necessarily the big and monumental, the colossal. It may, and sometimes, you know, listen, some of this stuff is good, some of it is emotional. And sometimes people chase colossal to a, and they just keep going event to event, and they never sit still. They don't listen for the small voice. They don't have that intimate time with the Lord. They want to keep finding God, God through the big. And, and I see Christians, they're so starstruck, and, and I hear this. Well, you should have been at this retreat. Well, there was this sports star. Well, there was this celebrity pastor from out of state. Well, there was the CEO. It's like we can't receive from people if they're not accomplished in the world. See, I'm one of those weird guys that complains about the aberrations in the Christian culture. I don't like it. And, and it's taboo to a lot of pastors, but I don't mind going there because I think it's, it's messed up. I'm here to do a job. I'm here to, to, to do what God... I'm not going to pass this up. Sometimes people are still so busy chasing big that they miss the small. They miss the discreet. They miss the soft. They miss the unassuming. They miss the, oh, it doesn't look real big. Shh. Listen to it. Right? God demonstrates the difference between colossal and simple. And God wasn't in the colossal, but he was in the simple. Maybe this was a way to change Elijah's channel because Elijah was on the top of Mount Carmel and he saw somebody made a movie out of it. You could just see the fireball coming down from heaven and everybody's cheering and the, the prophets of Baal are running away and he's like, stop them, slay them. This is something that you find in movies. And, and Elijah was in the middle of the movie. He was also in the middle of the little cloud that came out the size of a man's hand in chapter 18 that got bigger and bigger and blacker and blacker. And he said, head for the hills. You better go back to Je Jezreel, Ahab. It's coming. <sighs> the rain came down and just soaked everything. So he's trying to show Elijah, I'm not always in the big stuff. You know? And, and that's the beauty of Jesus too. Jesus did his best work one-on-one. -on -one. I hear Christians... Well, there was 10,000 people at that event. That's great. Was there discipleship for all 10,000? Were there any tares in that group? 
Did everybody get a phone number of somebody in ministry there? And while I'm on the subject and on my soapbox, I don't like the word, and Calvary Chapels use it sometimes too, crusades. Now, let me just say this. I'm, I'm really good with history. The crusades were very defensive. For the most part, they were righteous. They were trying to stop the takeover of Islam throughout, completely through Africa and Europe. However, how come we're not reaching the Muslims? Because you're calling it a crusade. Okay? Hey, Muslim friend, would you like to come to a crusade with me unarmed? Uh, no, thank you, Christian friend. I think I'll stay home that Friday night. I mean, the word crusade is a stupid word to use. You know, I have Muslim friends. I want to win them all to Christ. I'm certainly not going to call any of our events crusades. It's just not going to happen. But they're big crusades. Ah, pyrotechnics, all you can imagine. I want to read an article. I'm going to reference an article. Talking about big. Re I'm only going to read like three or four sentences. This has a lot of punch. This was picked up in Charisma News, um, a lot of Christian outlets, and it says... This happened in, came out in 2015. You all know the Newsboys, right? Christian rock band? Newsboys co-founder, George Perdikas, denounces Christianity, I'm now an atheist. George Perdikas has renounced Christ and embraced the godless worldview. Perdikas is not the first high-profile Christian rocker to reject Christ. Heavy metal Christian rock star Tim Lambesis, I'm not into the scene, so I'm not sure who some of these people are, uh, last June told the world he's an atheist. Not only that, he told the alternative, alternative press he figures only one in ten Christian bands he toured with were actually Christians. Now this is from the inside. Keep going. He says, The Christian music scene is populated by many people who act as though they have a direct hotline to a God who supplies them with the answers to the universe. There seems to be more ego and narcissism amongst Christian musicians than their secular counterparts. They demonize everyone while giving a pass to their own particular brand of Christianity, making themselves look like fluffy white angels with perfect, synchronized lives. You know, and I hear Christians, oh, how could he, traitor? You know what? I'm not mad at him. I'm sad for him. What I'm sad is that he saw a lot of phoniness, fleshiness. He didn't see a lot of genuineness. And I'll tell you, there's some Calvaries that are affiliated with some of this stuff. You got a guy who's in it and then out, and he goes, maybe one out of ten of those Christian bands are actually Christians? Remember, this is from the inside. It's really sad. I mean, who cares about being a good witness? The show must go on. Sometimes it's too big, it's too tempting, it's too... See, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just going to continue on. Verse 14, he says, so he said, Elijah, now he's repeating himself, and I almost see him trying to continue to convince himself that what he's saying is right. And again, I'm, it's just me. I, I think that he probably at this point loses some of his vigor. So he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. All right, go back north now. All right, northeast, you're southwest. And when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. 
It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. All right? Justice is finally going to be served. And this isn't, well, somebody believes, and it's interesting, those that are antagonists to Christianity. Well, you're just like the rest of them. In the Old Testament, there was you know, wars, and there was this, and there was that. Well, you know what? God didn't whack people because they didn't believe what he believed. And even the Canaanites, he gave them 400 years to repent. They were doing horrific things in the community to children, to the disabled, to women. And God's like, you know what? Enough is enough. So here's the thing. Christians sometimes don't know how to answer the attacks, right? There's religions who kill and attack, and there's, there's many of them. If you don't believe what they believe, they will forci forcibly convert you. That is not the case in Christianity. It wasn't the case in Judaism. Okay, there was some, again, horrific things that were going on and justice needed to be served. Understand that. But, you know, God did not accept what Elijah said the second time. He said the same thing. I could say, you know, we whine too. He was whining. Uh, but God doesn't even address it. You see Jesus do that too. Remember, you know, yes or no, Jesus, you know, what do we do with this woman caught in adultery? You know, this is what the law of Moses says. He never answered their question. He says, how about... Whoever here is without sin, cast the first stone. And they all started dropping their stones. God's not going to answer a yes or no question if it's a dumb question or if it's a bad premise. And he didn't do it with Elijah. And he basically did. God changed the channel from the pity channel to I need to use you channel. God's good at changing the channel. You got things to do, Elijah. I still love you. I still want to use you. Enough is enough. <laughs> now, now go do what I asked you to do. And this is a great picture of a relationship that, that we have with the Lord. It's the highs and the lows. You know, one day we're singing and praising and, oh, God is so great. And the next day it's like, Lord, you forgot me. <laughs> Lord, don't you see? And then we go back to praising next week. We're weird, aren't we? <laughs> but it's, it's human nature, you know. Uh, he eventually, God's going to tell us to pick ourselves up and get back into the fight. Um, and i got to tell you, what you see too here is progression of ministry. And don't take this the wrong way, because these things didn't happen right away. Okay? Elisha didn't take over right away from Elijah. So he wasn't saying, here's your replacement, get out, I'm done with you. He, and, you know, same thing with, uh, was it Jehu? He was the third king after Ahab. So what God asked Elijah to do wasn't something that took place immediately, but he needed him to go, he needed him to travel, and even after the anointing, some time took place before that person actually replaced their predecessor. And I would say this too, at this church, uh, pastors and elders, you know, when we get to the point where we're, hey, it happens to the best of us, we, we age out, we're tired, we can't remember stuff, um, hopefully there's a new wave of people that are going to come in and take this pulpit, and I'm more than happy to pass the torch. You know, uh, God, God, had his replacements. He, he's a planner. You know, God's not going to get uh, caught off guard, off guard. Now, another thing about these men is they were not hot shots. Number one, Elisha was a farmer. What does a farmer know about being a prophet? Oh, then we talk about Nehemiah. What does Nehemiah know about building a wall? Nothing. I'm tasting, I'm tasting the wine, I'm tasting the meat, I'm in the king's court. And he was sent to do a whole bunch of things that he had no experience with. Remember? 
God qualifies the call. He doesn't necessarily call the qualified. So Elisha was a farmer. He's going to be a prophet and replace Elijah. Uh, Haziel was going to be the king, but he, now he was just a servant to the king. And Jehu was just a military officer. See, again, we need to unbrainwash ourselves. God is not looking for celebrities. He's looking for willing people who see their own faults and failings but really want to serve God and really want to change. 18, I'll read it again. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Um, Elijah, if I could paraphrase, you're not the, God's saying you're not the only one honoring me. I got 7,000. It's a lot of people, Elijah. Did you know that? <laughs> now remember, Elijah also had a very public ministry. Everybody knew who he was. And everybody knew that he was indirectly responsible for the rain not coming down because God used him to say, shut up the heavens. So Elijah had a very public ministry. However, the 7,000, Elijah might not have known, but I'm sure they knew him because the 7,000 were behind the scenes. They were behind the scenes, probably doing personal evangelism, probably stirring up the hearts of individual Israelites so that when Elijah did do that feat on Mount Carmel, they were ripe. Right? It's like the evangelist who goes out tirelessly and, and through a lot of people and don't know who they're reaching. And then they get somebody later on and it clicks. God is amazing the way he does things. Um, if I could just, I'll just reference another quick article. Remember, and, and I, I think that, and if I could read into it a little bit, I think that Elijah was not, probably people looked at him as something really big. And I don't think he looked at himself like that. So he probably was the right guy for a public ministry where a lot of people knew him. And then he had just the right 7,000 to be behind the scenes, and we don't even know any of their names. This is, I actually am part of a senior pastor's, it's called The Bounce. And the, in the Northeast, the tri-state area, all the senior pastors of Calvary Chapel, we just send stuff, articles, and we bounce it back and forth, comment on it. Um, one of the gentlemen spoke, uh, he sent a, a, an article on, in Leadership Journal, and it says, the best way to promote church growth support small churches. He said, people are led to Jesus, discipled, and sent into ministry from full, small churches than by any other means. Now, size is relative. I actually did a little, you know, uh, investigation. The average size for church and members, people, uh, in the United States is 75. Yeah. On a Sunday, we're triple that. Uh, it was shocking for me to read that because I come from a huge church. Size can be very relative. You see what I'm saying? We actually had a few families, too, I could think of, not in a bad way, a mean way. They left the church because it was too, too many people on a Sunday. They went to a church that had 20 to 30. Interesting. Again, coming from what I come from, I think we're small, medium, but they saw us as huge. So let's just check that out real quick. The author says, it's very interesting, he says, the stats tell us that 10 smaller churches of 100 people will accomplish, accomplish much more than one church of 1,000. He goes, yes, you read that right. Go ahead and reread it if you need to. I'll wait. Kind of humorous. He says, in the business world, massive companies like Google, Facebook, and Coca-Cola get all the attention, but small businesses are what drive the economy. Don't we hear that from the economists all the time? It's a fact. The same is true for the church. Big and mega churches get almost all the attention but small churches drive the growth of the global church. And what I'm trying to say is I'm trying to make an analogy here. 
I hope I'm doing a good job, is that Elijah needed to change his frame of thinking. He expected more of what he saw on Mount Carmel. He expected more out of the kingdom and, and big colossal changes. And what God was saying is, you don't know what I'm doing behind the scenes. You don't know what I'm doing unassuming, quiet, and personal with each one of the Israelites. And, I, and I, let me just say that to encourage myself. Let me bounce it back, mirror. And for everyone else in, who's in ministry is we don't know the results. But we need to do that discipleship, that one-on-one, that small stuff, pouring into people in one day, God will show us the results. It's one of those things where we don't see results right away. And this is what Elijah needed to understand. Okay. Last few verses. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. Elisha's a very powerful... Some people get... I used to for a while. Well, what did Elijah do and what did Elisha do? Because their names are very similar. But we're going to go and I'll tell you what Elisha did. Uh, just stay with me long enough on Wednesday nights. So he finds Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. Then Elijah passed by and threw his mantle or his cloak on him. You could just see him standing on, uh, you know, hanging on a tree branch or on a higher elevation, and when he passes just the right time, he throws his cloak on him. So it, it falls on him, and, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. He knew what that meant. I'll explain that. He says, please let me kiss my father and my mother. Then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? Like, it wasn't me, it was God, but I'm being obedient. Sometimes the Hebrew is a little hard to decipher. Verse 21, so Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment, that's key, and gave it to the people and they ate. Sounds like he had a big family. And then he arose and followed Elijah and served him. So this is the call of Elisha. Um, to take your, if you're a man of God, and, and even in discipleship, to take your cloak, your out of garment, and put it on somebody like a young protege, that's a sign that you're being anointed. You know, that's a sign of we're gonna, I'm going to be discipling you. Okay? Again, to us it's foreign. Back then they completely understood what it meant. That's why he immediately follows him. Verse 20, not easily understood. He says, uh, let me kiss my father. And then Elijah says, go back again for what have I done to you? In other words, maybe what have I done to you? Hey, Elisha, do whatever you want. This is a call of God. Don't stay too long because remember who this comes from. It's not coming from me. It's coming from God. Do what you think is right. Now, and because I know it's going to be asked because it's very similar to what Jesus said. Jesus in Luke 9.62 said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is worthy for service in the kingdom. It doesn't apply here. He Jesus was talking about those who, well, I want to be in ministry, well, I don't want to be in ministry, well, I want to be in ministry, and they just can't make up their mind. You know, do you want to be in ministry? Do you, you want to follow God? Do you not want to follow God? Uh, if, if you keep doing that, it's, you just don't do it because it's, it's, a, bad, it's a bad example. Uh, so he says that. Uh, he says, hey, I just want to say goodbye to my family. And, and what's key here is he burns his equipment that he was using for the oxen. So he couldn't put his hand to the plow anyway. Anyway, he destroyed the plow. Maybe he gave some of it away, but part of it he chopped up and maybe used to make that fire. And basically that was symbolic of saying, I'm done doing this. I've got to go follow Elijah. So I just want to say goodbye. I want to tell my family what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, pray for me. <laughs> Something like that. So <laughs> Elijah, Elisha, though, did have to say goodbye to his family. And so did the disciples. This was a sacrifice of doing the work of the Lord. 
Now, when we do the work of the Lord, and it depends on how deeply we get involved, it's more of a sacrifice. It just is. You know, in Galatians 6, the Apostle Paul said, I bear the marks of the Lord Jesus in my body. He left a great education. He left his professional associates. He left probably a great lucrative career. He left stability as far as staying in one geographical location. If you think of all the things the Apostle Paul sacrificed to follow the Lord, it was phenomenal. But I think right now, in the last 2,000 years, I don't think he regrets any of it. I'm going to ask him when I see him, but I'm pretty sure that that's not an issue. Um, And the best way for me to explain this before we close is if God is calling you, your life has to change in some way. Period. Right? It just can't stay the same. And some, when they come to God, well, I want to be in ministry and I want to serve, but... And they give God a list of their terms. It's like those agreements before you put an app on your computer and there's like 100 paragraphs and you get click, I agree. Well, Lord, I don't want to serve at this time. I don't want to serve this way. I don't want to serve with these people. I don't want to give too much to those. I want to help people out, but there's a limit to what I can give. And they have all these terms. God knows. He, he knows what's good for us and what's not. So, you know, Elisha did it and he moved forward and, and that was it. In closing, um, one of my titles for this message, which I scrapped, was the highs and lows of ministry. I think we, we can all see that. That's definitely a theme that runs throughout this. However, I titled it instead, Can We Hear His Still Small Voice? Because I think that's much more important. Okay? Not everybody's going to be in ministry, and that's fine. Um, and even those who are not in ministry, quote, has, have, should have, as Christians, personal ministry. Just dealing with people, pouring into them. We should all be doing something for the Lord. We should all be bearing fruit in some way. But this applies more to us than the highs and lows of ministry. So God can't contrast the big manifestations with his still small voice, and boy, is that applicable today. I spoke about the colossal manifestations in the Christian culture. What about the colossal manifestations in American culture? You take all these distractions. I mean, it's some recipe, static, interference, distractions between American culture and even sometimes in the Christian culture. We have to do this, and we've got to run to that, and then we've got to see this, and this person's going to be performing, and do-do-do-do, all this kind of stuff. And I don't need to be long-winded to say that there's an application for all of us in this message. In the hustle and bustle of our lives, do we take the time to sit still and be quiet for that still, small voice? That is anathema to pastors. We don't like pauses. But I did that to make a point. Someone's going to think they're going to listen to the CD. Oh, it's over. He didn't even say amen. He just ended it. (laughs) But I did that for a reason. Because, you know, turning off the phone, going outside, just going somewhere where you're just going to be alone. And just say, you know what, Lord? I just want to hear from you. I just want to be... You know, it's a dialogue, not a monologue. I don't want to be talking at you. I want, to, I want this to be something that we both can enjoy. As God wants to reveal himself and, conti- and commune with us, but I have to tell you, he's oftentimes not going to shout and chase us to get our attention. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation. 
from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.